Good morning. This is the Driller Newscast, episode 11. This week, we will cover Vermont and Connecticut's intent towards reducing greenhouse gases. Next, we'll jump into two new lawsuits, one in North Dakota over an oil spill that contaminated the Little Missouri River, and Wisconsin seeking damages on companies who failed to warn them of the dangers of PFAS. For our main story, I will discuss fatality investigations that lead to criminal charges. But before we drill into all of this great topics for the week, let's talk some safety. For this week's safety topic, I want to talk hand safety. I want you to look at your scars on your hands. Is it a big story of all of the bad choices we've made? Were you lucky? Do you have all 10 fingers? Did you learn a lesson? Are you thinking right now that the lessons learned on our hands, if I had just had better gloves? No. Gloves are the last line of defense. Our primary line of defense is understanding as we handle these hazards and how to properly identify them and understanding how they can impact us from punctures to cuts to lacerations to chemical absorption to burns to stored energy crushing and smashing us. So as we dive into hand safety this week, think about it. How did it start? What was our task at hand? What were the hazards that were going to be associated with that task? And then consider, was it pinch points? Was it good communication between the operator and the assistant driller? What were the materials we were going to handle? Did they have sharp points to them? Were we working on something that had stored energy and had the opportunity to puncture or lacerate. As we look into the way we strip wires back or cut conduit, are we using the right tool? As we trip out and we're breaking apart rods, what type of gloves do we have on? Many large oil and gas companies assign multiple pairs of gloves because we have a lot of different things we're doing. And sure, we end up one in gloves that give us good dexterity and maybe don't have uh, the flexibility, but we need to think about all of the bones and lig ligaments and tendons and muscles in our hands and how severely we can be injured and how much time it takes to recover from those. And then understanding it's more than just saying, hey, don't put your hand anywhere you wouldn't put your tongue or whatever other appendage we end up talking about. But it really comes down to understanding our risks, understanding if I'm going to be handling hazardous chemicals, do I have a glove that can stand up to preventing absorption, preventing us from getting hurt? Or do I have a cut level four glove to prevent me from lacerating myself and understanding our tasks? It's very simple. Do we have all 10 fingers? Can we see the scars? Do we understand what we did that was wrong in that situation? It's all about understanding the risk and understanding that personal protective equipment is the last line of defense. Good choices, good processes, 
training, understanding our near misses, all apply to us being safe and having good working hands when we get home for the weekend or the evening or we want to be out enjoying our family. Be safe out there. And now for the news impacting the drilling industry this week. We're going to start in Vermont. The beginning of May, Governor Phil Scott vetoed a bill that would have created a clean heat standard for Vermont to help the state reduce emissions from heating buildings to meet the state's climate change commitments. Many states across the country right now are looking at climate change commitments and green energy and banning fossil fuels as a energy source. Scott said in his veto message on Friday that the legislation does not include details on the cost and impacts, which he said he has repeatedly asked the legislator to include. He says, I understand the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which I have proposed a $216 million climate package and why my administration has engaged in this policy conversation since January. In Vermont, heating buildings make up about 35% of Vermont's greenhouse gas emissions and is the state's second largest source of emissions after transportation. That's from Vermont Public Radio. The bill called on the Public Utilities Commission to create regulations to reduce fossil fuels in buildings and develop a clean heat credit program in which businesses that import such fuels for heat would have to buy or create clean heat credits based on how much they produce. They would create credits by helping people reduce emissions in their homes and businesses. You know, as we look at this situation, Vermont is looking at every viable way to help businesses and homes, such as weatherization, installing cold climate heat pumps, or switching to high efficiency wood heat. Ground source geothermal, along with electrification and solar and wind, is the future. And right nearby, Connecticut, is making moves to become the 11th state in the nation to move towards 100% clean energy goals. Connecticut lawmakers voted last week to officially set targets of 2040 for having a carbon-free electricity supply, despite skepticism about whether the state can meet the goal and whether the ratepayers can afford the cost. What is it to the cost of our environment? Obviously, we need to start making these goals across the country. This legislation, which codifies an executive order issued in 2019 by Governor Ned Lamont, would make Connecticut number 11 to move towards these targets, which we need to see many more states doing. They're going to do this by codifying their zero carbon electric grid target into state law. They state... We are providing a critical direction for state and local agencies, utility companies, and other partners as we collectively plan and implement Connecticut's energy policies over the coming years. Lamont's statement continues, 
This is an important action we are taking to help mitigate the impacts of the climate crisis that we are already starting to experience. The governor plans to sign this into law in the coming days, but State Representative Cindy Harrison said she worries the legislation, which does not include any mandates or penalties for failing to reach the goal, could ultimately lead to higher electric rates for consumers. We talked about this last week, what New York is doing. As they continue, you should be paying attention to New York's Climate Act. We can see Connecticut's moves, Vermont, California, Michigan, There's 10 other states out there that are all working towards these zero emissions. And ground source geothermal is very important. Why does it affect the drilling industry? Because we need every able-bodied drilling company and driller considering when they're not installing water wells or working on cathodic projects or any other type of industrial drilling to be installing ground source geothermal loops and partnering with good HVAC companies and large projects to help us meet these goals. So let's jump out of plans to electrify and look at renewable energies to North Dakota and the federal government who have filed a lawsuit over a large oil spill that contaminated the Little Missouri River and tributary in 2016. There's a lawsuit filed late last week on a pipeline that seeks civil penalties and nearly 100,000 in reimbursement for the North Dakota Department of Environmental Quality's efforts in responding to the 600,000 gallon oil spill. This is a big deal. You know, we see a lot of these spills across the country and we have to have good response, but we also have to understand as we're looking at alternatives to fossil fuels, these are the other risks that we're mitigating. And we can see this in the Dakotas and we saw it in Minnesota and we've seen it in Montana and we've seen it in Pennsylvania, but we have to have good response plans and we have to be environmental stewards and understand the impact we're having to our environment when these spills occur. And finally, on to Madison, Wisconsin. Dane County officials are suing dozens of firefighting foam manufacturers, alleging their products contaminated the area around the county's airport. The Wisconsin State Journal reported last week that the county is seeking damages from dozens of companies, including DuPont, 3M, and Johnson Controls. The county alleges the manufacturers sold foam for decades despite knowing it contained PFAS and failed to warn consumers and the public of the chemical's dangers. Court records indicate the county filed the lawsuit on April 26th. The city of La Crosse filed a similar lawsuit last year. The State Department of Justice sued Johnson Controls in March over PFAS contamination near Marinette. A Waukesha County judge last month, however, ruled that the State Department of Natural Resources lacks authority to regulate PFAS because the state hasn't set any limits on the chemicals. It's unclear what the effect that ruling could have on other lawsuits. Again, here we are. We need to be 
talking with our state associations and our national associations and paying attention to PFAS and the importance of setting limits and stop having this fear mongering over it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to change water wells and plug them or move to pipelines. We need to set limits so that we can start this cleanup process and recoup some of the damages. And now for our featured industry professional, industry driller, industry good friend, fellow uh, co-bull rider at Nashville NGWA. Yeah, that's right. Two men, one bull. Um, Tom Howe. Tom, how did drilling get into your blood? Well, for me, it, uh, I had roots early because I grew up in a grape vineyard. So uh, I spent a lot of time digging post holes, uh, setting, setting uh, poles in the, in the grape vineyard. And then uh, it seemed like uh, just something exciting for me to dig in the ground and see what was down there. So my dad would always be catching me digging holes in the backyard and down at him and say, yeah, you got to fill that back in, you know, so um i think that's that's where it started off for me and then just uh the love of heavy machinery and being around tractors and stuff growing up and uh and i remember uh when we first had our our well replaced on our farm and watching the rig come in and and replacing the well and how exciting that was to to see them make water come out of the ground so what is one big lesson you learned in the field with a drilling rig yeah, I think that uh, the biggest lesson I learned is to trust your instincts um, and to be flexible. I know these are kind of kind of broad uh, things, but you gotta always seek the truth. Um, you're only given parts of information, and uh, you gotta you know paint a picture in your mind of what's going on down below. And uh, so trusting your instincts, doing your research ahead of time to know what you could be getting into, um, but ultimately being able to make those decisions and trust your instincts uh, when you're in the field, I think is the biggest lesson I've learned. And then you transferred out of the field back into academia. What are you doing now? Yeah, so now I, I work as a geoscience uh, senior specialist at Western Michigan University in their Department of Geological and Environmental Sciences. Uh, I've been here 10 years now. Um, so yeah, I run a hydrogeology field camp and I get to teach uh, teach drilling and well installation to, uh, to young geologists about to finish their undergraduate or graduate or even learn new skills as, as professionals. So that's that's what i'm up to during the summer the rest of the year i get to just play with cool rocks and hang out with brock or whatever what is one lesson you like to bestow on these young scientists about to enter the field um you're teaching drilling now so what is that lesson yeah, I think uh, if there's one thing that they can take away from the courses they have with me, it's to learn to be critical thinkers and to, to use all that they've learned to be a force for good. Um, there's a lot of good things that can come out of this industry and there's wrong ways to do things and right ways to do things. But ultimately, um, 
I just want them to be able to be able to know how to ask the right questions as opposed to just being a, a book of knowledge that can answer everything because there's no way you can do that. So. so we hear a lot about geologic field camps. This is a hydrogeologic field camp. What makes it different? Uh, I think what sets us apart from a lot of other geology capstone field courses is that um, we're bridging that gap between uh, scholastic knowledge and getting actual hands-on applied training. So I feel like our students after six weeks, uh, you know, they, we always talk about, you know, you need one to three years experience to get the entry-level job. Well, uh, we give them that um, experience in that six weeks of just getting their hands-on and being exposed to all these different uh, opportunities within the field, so. And that's six one credit weeks. Uh, I'm sure there's professionals out that will watch this newscast and go, man, I wish I could go back to college so I could take something like this. Do you have to be enrolled in college to take this course? Um, well, you do have to register, but you don't have to be a full-time student. Um, so we, we take guest applications. I've had PhD scientists, uh, professors at other universities come and take it. I've had people take it that are in the regulatory uh agency that want to get some practical knowledge about you know what what really happens out in the field uh when we're drilling wells and drilling holes in the ground so uh, we also offer a certificate program uh, for people that do have a want to get some kind of an accolade out of it you know we decide saying yeah i took this class you know we do offer certificate programs for both at the undergraduate and graduate level for people so well, awesome. I want to thank Tom Howe from coming on, uh, fellow Bronco alum. We got a lot of those out there. Uh, Tom Hanna is also a Bronco alum. So, you know, we have that situation in the industry of gurus and professionals, and he pops into this course when, he, when he's not jet setting. Uh, if you'd like to be a featured driller industry professional for the Driller Newscast, email me questions at asbrock.com you can come on and we'll have a great conversation just like this one thanks tom for coming on thank you great to see you brock good seeing you buddy for our main story of the week i want us to discuss the responsibilities of the leader on site of any project in the field and how important it is to understand just the full ramifications of violating safety policy, taking a shortcut, thinking that we've done this a dozen times and it doesn't matter, we'll be in and out. And it starts with the most recent case that's been brought to my attention, where the US Department of Labor has a workplace fatality investigation and it finds contractors sent two workers back into an Austin trench after a partial collapse. Right now, the OSHA proposed fines are $243,000 following a fatality and a serious injury. So as the Department of Labor and OSHA take a look at this, the investigation, you know, 
the discussion comes up, who was the competent person on site? What were the laws? You know, OSHA's investigation cited the company for willful violation of failing to have a trench protective system in place, exposing workers to a cave-in hazard, failing to inspect the excavation, exposing workers to the dangers of being struck by material and equipment. And this all came from despite a partial trench collapse earlier in the day. The contractor recklessly sent these employees back into the excavation without protective measures to prevent another cave-in. And that came from OSHA area director Casey Perkins in Austin. The loss of these workers' life was completely preventable. And therefore, the employer is held responsible. They ignored all of the excavation safety rules. We can go back to episode one of the newscast. It's the first safety topic I talked about. Because trench collapses for our industry for digging in to do manifolds or pipelines or doing well hookups or digging a pit for mud rotary or reverse circulation. There's so many situations that we need to understand our soils. We understand what mitigation we need, what possibilities, and how we prevent somebody from being trapped. The investigators also issued citations for serious violations for failing to train employees working in and around an excavation, exposing workers to struck by hazards and failing to implement protective measures when water was present in the trench, exposing employees to cave-in hazards. We have seen more and more criminal cases from negligence on job sites. Lawyers prosecutors solidify the idea of those in charge being negligent from the fact that we have all of the safety regulations, we have all of the proper tools in place, we have processes, we have the rules, and we continue to put somebody in danger when the situation was fully preventable. It comes down to the fact that competent people executing safely by obeying regulations and utilizing protective measures makes it so we don't have to have these situations happen. And we have that horrific accident that leaves somebody mangled or impaired or worse without them being on our job site anymore. Once OSHA's done and they start a criminal investigation, you know, first degree manslaughter can carry up to life in prison. We just lost a great colleague on a job site and now we're going to lose another individual to prison time for making a bad choice. You know, and maybe it doesn't become first degree and it's second degree. And that's many places, 10 years and large fines. And sure, we see it. You can 
look across at all of these investigations that have happened from 2016 to now and see where, you know, time in prison has been reduced down and those situations. But we shouldn't be in this place. We shouldn't be having this happen. If you look at cases from the 2020 tragedy in Washington, where the man who died was the rescuer to the man who originally jumped into the trench. He said, I'm going to save you, the less than 30-year-old, to the 50-year-old who was trapped up to his knees. And when he jumped into the hole, which was 12 foot deep, it collapsed. And it killed that young man and severely hurt two others. And this case is ongoing right now for criminal charges to see what, what could be of this situation. And so as we look at construction workers who are in cases right now, trying to determine their fate beyond having been on site as somebody lost their life in a terrible choice of processes you know here's the states that have convicted men california colorado massachusetts boston massachusetts two young men lost their lives in a trench collapse on a project that was behind schedule and that on-site individual that allowed them to get into the hole is spending two years in prison New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. In every one of these cases, this is the terminology. The terminology that we know from our OSHA 10s, our OSHA 30s, from watching our webinars on safety, having tailgate discussions. It all comes up to the competent person. That is what is used. The competent person, which we talk about many times in OSHA standards. Think about it. The competent person is defined as the one who is capable of identifying existing and predictable hazards in the surrounding or working conditions, which are unsanitary, hazardous, or dangerous to employees, and who have authorization to take prompt corrective measures to eliminate them. Go to your book. It's 29 CFR 1926.32 subpart F. Think about our training and our experience. And that competent person is knowledgeable of the applicable standards and is capable of identifying workplace hazards relating to the specific operation and has the authority to correct them. We can recognize the hazard and we have the authority to correct them. And we all have the authority on site to say stop. We talk about this a lot. You know, and sure, some of these standards add additional specific requirements which must be met by the competent person, such as rigging. You know, our job as the competent person on site is to regularly inspect our working conditions and inspect our protective systems, if that's fall protection or if that's trench boxes or it's the process for the day. So it comes back to this. We know better. 
that we're not going to get in a trench that isn't shored, that hasn't been properly identified for soils, hasn't had a trench box. Understanding that, you know, trenches deeper than four feet, we start looking at that depending on the soil, depending on the state regulations. And we have to go to engineered trenching, containment, you know, risk mitigation when we get deeper. And those last two fatalities, 12 feet and 15 feet, there was no reason anybody should have ever been down in that hole. And the individual that went down in that hole has to live with for the rest of his life that the less than 30 year old said, no, I'm coming. I'm coming down there to save you. And it collapsed. We all have the right to say stop. We should be having a bigger discussion right now on climate change or what's happening in the Colorado River. There's so much going on for us to continue to think about. We're going to make good choices or bad choices today and understanding the regulations. So let's make good choices so we can get back to fighting the global water crisis and helping come up with renewable energies and pulling the resources we need out of the ground to progress civilization. I want to thank you for joining episode 11 of the Driller Newscast. Check out thedriller.com for great content, Drilling Insight podcasts, Ask Brock series, Safety by Dave Bowers, Leadership by Jake Fletcher, the fantastic insight that our editor Jeremy contributes all the time. We are still looking for sponsors to be able to continue to promote good safety, good choices, clean water, clean energy, being able to get those resources out of the ground and help our drilling world. Have a great week. Stay safe. Realize we all have a responsibility to make sure everybody else on site gets home in one piece continually until requirement and we don't know what they're doing on that golf course or that boat or what's happening. Thanks industry.